Arthur Penn sat down with moderator Melvin Bernhard for a one-on-one interview in May of 1987. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Hello, uh, I'm Melvin Bernhardt, and uh, we're here today to uh, uh, talk with Arthur Penn. What we'll do is, is I, I have some things I wanted to ask that I thought might open up some things that we want to know about and talk about, and then we'll open it up to the floor. and. You can bring up some questions. I would, you know, we all know that Arthur Penn is a distinguished film director and has done uh, some of our favorite films, and we were just talking about some of our haunting memories in cinema. But we want to kind of concentrate on the stage work. Um, although, now actually, you started out as a television director. Right. Did about 200 TV shows yes. before you ever hit Broadway? Yes. Live, live TV. Live TV back in the golden days, and hit Broadway. Uh, and I use that word advisedly. In January of 1950, between January and 1958, and December in 1960, five hit shows on Broadway: Two for the Seesaw, The Miracle Worker, Toys in the Attic, An Evening with Nichols and May, and All the Way Home. Only one of those got a Pulitzer, huh? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Um, and I guess there were a couple of Tonys in there. Yeah, I think there was a Tony for the Miracle Yeah. Miracle yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of a nice start for the kid from television to move to Broadway. Um, uh, also, we remember uh, Wait Until Dark, Fly Fox, Golda, and most recently 1982 on Broadway with Monday After the Miracle, which was the sequel to Miracle Work. And... Toys in the Did we talk about Toys in the Attic? Really yeah, I mentioned that in the, in, the, in the five. In the yeah. five. Yeah. Did I not say it? Yeah, oh. you did. You did. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, and then five years hiatus from New York here, New York stage, uh, until just the season hunting cockroaches over at the Manhattan Theater Club, which I understand we're going to get a chance to see again. Those of us who were yeah, able to I get in, yeah, we are. We are. I'm going to. I'm going to revive it somehow, and uh, if I can persuade. Uh, dubious powers that be that control the New York Theater. I'd like to get it into the house on Broadway. Seems to be perfectly appropriate. Who are those dubious powers? Yeah, Jerry. Jerry and Bernie are their names? Uh, Jerry is Jerry. I don't know about Bernie anymore. Oh, he's pretty sharp there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with um, uh, Anne Bancroft said in an interview some time ago, Arthur was more than my director. He was my teacher. Fred Coe said about you, he's no note taker, no list maker. He never shares what he says to one actor with another one. And the first impression is that nothing is planned. Now, you have studied Michael Chekhov, right. uh, actor studio, and, and you've maintained a very strong connection with the actor studio over all these years. Um, what about your way of work? What do you want to Well, there, there are to sort of lay down a kind of premise from which we can then uh, talk. What I came to find early on, and probably this started in television, 
but it certainly uh, endured into the theater, was the sense that the words of the play are essentially only a kind of code to the actors and to the director. After all, they're only the utterances of, and there are relatively few utterances that make up a play, but they're the utterances of people whose lives we want to reflect. So that, in a peculiar way, the language of the play is its final distillation. It's a very entrapping and imprisoning form if you become uh, too bound by the language of the play too early. It seems to me that most of the process that we go through in the theater is to start with the language of the play, be imprisoned by that language, which perforce prevents a certain kind of psychological development, development of another sort, because you are constantly entrapped by those relatively few sentences. So my effort as a director is to keep the actors as, poss as strongly as, as, as possible, liberated from the text, but not from the ideas so that the ideas of the text are what we operate from. But we don't quickly resort to the language, because the quicker you get to the language, the quicker you get to the distillation, the more closed the possibilities become for you, the actor, to develop. Now this, needless to say, this causes a lot of grief with playwrights and a lot of panic, because the uh, uh, obvious state resembles anarchy far more than it does this well-crafted play that they have made over the years. And with a perfectly understandable playwright's orientation, which is having thought these characters through, having finally achieved this language, their sense is now, just say the words and everything will be there. It's a little like those sort of Japanese flowers that, you know, this paper thing that you drop into a glass of water, and then a great flower explodes. Well, a little, the theater is a little bit like that. Language. I try to stave off that moment of finally wedding the action to the text as long as possible, because I believe during this creative process for the actors and the director, the text is peculiarly the enemy. Eventually, it will be embraced as one's dearest friend, but not till the very end of the process. Because the sooner you absorb yourself, absorb that language, and make it your own, the sooner you close down the possibilities of associative behavior, inappropriate behavior, odd little ways of treating that language, and you become, in a peculiar way, something of an automaton who gives voice So that, that then pre predisposes me to this state of anarchy that the, that the rehearsals tend to resemble. And by that, I mean I keep this actor from knowing what I'm saying to that actor, and that actor from knowing what I'm saying to these, because I want them constantly to be on the alert to the surprise of human interaction. If it becomes predictable too early, God knows if you have a long-running play, 
everything becomes so predictable that they can go on, you know, like, like an IBM machine eventually. But certainly during the rehearsal period, you want to keep them as off-balance, as open to the unexpected as it's possible to be. And when somebody, and I'll give you later on a couple of examples of this, when people say and do things in odd ways, it, it causes a new reaction. And very often that new reaction is not one that you would ever have predicted if the language was what you read off the page. Of, and, I'll, and I'll tell you about a famous attempt that was made based on this, but, but I, I won't do it now. In any event, that's the kind of uh, premise from which I operate, which is to try to keep chaos in the work as long as possible. What, what did uh, Anne Bancroft mean when she said he's more than, more than directly the teacher? Well, uh, that was a peculiar event. Annie, Annie had come out of the American Academy. She'd gone into a couple of live television shows, been picked up by Hollywood, went out there and did, I think, nine or 11 B.C. movies, you know. Had never been on the stage. But she had this wonderful personal character, just absolutely delightful. So when she was introduced to it, we had been looking for a woman to play Gittle that took the seesaw. It was our first play. Opposite at that point, Henry Fonda, who was the single biggest male star, the biggest, biggest star on Broadway. He'd just been in Mr. Roberts. He, you know, he, he just was a, the big star. Well, now here we go looking for somebody. And we finally decide on this girl who's never been on the stage. Literally never been on the stage. Except what little studio work she'd done. So that what I had to teach her was, again, a certain extension of the theory that I was enunciating before, which is Henry Fonda had his own way of thinking, <coughs> which was he came from the kind of theater guild background, which is you know your words, you come in, you get your moves, and you do them, and you do them every day, and you get everything smooth, and it works fine. Annie, on the other hand, as, as beautiful a piece of untrained material as I'd ever come across. I was determined to keep her from becoming that kind of actor, believing that that was the way acting was done. She was full of emotion, full of capability. What she lacked was the apparent technique of knowing how to make a stage turn this way and a downstage turn here and how you don't walk on somebody else's line and all of those kind of little courtesies that used to come down and B, what we were th taught to believe was the technique of the actor. Well, I was, it was Annie's unexpected richness of behavior, of humor, of emotion that would come in funny, inappropriate places that, that I, I was determined that she would learn to trust and indeed developed so that she became, for well, my money, for a few years, the premier American actress. But that meant that she had to also hold off an onslaught from Henry Fonda, who was chagrined at 
this kind of behavior in a play. And very early on in rehearsal, and to me when we were still around the table, I thought that this was going to be a play about two charming people. And, you know, here she is crying, and snot is running out of her nose, and uh, I, I can't kiss her. I mean, I just, it's just not, I just don't know what, what it is you want here. And I said I wanted, essentially I said, I can't remember the literal quotation, but I said that I wanted a great deal of truth that this kind of behavior seemed to me to be the bedrock of this play, that if we didn't have this high level of emotional affect, that we wouldn't have a play. That if the play was not built on desperation, and that the desperation in itself would eventually, when fully executed, result in, in comedy. And that was the basis on which we attacked it. Hank was more than doing he thought he was in the hands of a lunatic. Because this was my first Broadway play. It was first Bill Gibson's first Broadway play. It was Annie's first Broadway play. Here we were with the greatest veteran of the American theater who thought he had really stepped into the loony farm. But in point of fact, that was the basis on which we did it. And fortunately, it was a huge hit. The irony of it is that effective practically opening night, Fonda gave his notice, which was, I'm out of this play in six months, that's my contract. And although he was 25% owner of the play, he did leave it after six months. And he went on to become a star. Now that, uh, how would you like to be sitting in rehearsal and know that somebody is going to write a book about everything that, everything that went wrong? The author, Bill Gibson, wrote The Seesawlog, which most of you, I think, must know, it, which is a blow-by-blow -blow account of a lot of the stuff that went on. Yes. Um, say some more about what, what, what do you do when you, when you find yourself, this is particularly true today, in order to get a play on very often, we've got to get a star, we've got to get a name person. What do you do when you find that the star has either not seen what you see in the play, or has missed what's intrinsic there, which is the conflict between those two very different people. How can we deal with those things? Well, one of the things that, that, that I suppose being in live television had taught me was a certain kind of uh, adaptability, which is to speak to Fonda in his language, to speak to Bancroft in hers. Later on in Toys in the Attic, to speak to Jason Robarts in his language, to Maureen Stapleton in hers, to Irene Worth and they're very distinct languages. They, you, 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 you must never make the confusion that because you are speaking clearly or lucidly or apparently so to yourself, that it's being received in those terms. Because it is not. It's not. Actors work within a system. And that system is very strong. Very, very strong. It's like child rearing. A child reared in a certain atmosphere bears the imprint of that atmosphere. Well, an actor reared in a certain atmosphere bears that imprint. And when you say, I, I want this kind of behavior, and that it's not a semblance of weeping, but it is weeping, or I want a semblance, not a semblance of a 
kind of suicidal desperation, but a, a suicidal desperation. You're, you're trembling on the brink of, of, of chaos and revolt. But it is necessary to slowly bring that about through their own system. The difficulty in this play, and it was never brought home more forcefully, was to keep one actor from demoralizing the other so badly. And that was a very a difficult problem. Because here was Annie, a true novice. And Hank, who was a this great star, a true gentleman, but an outspoken one, a man of certain candor. And every once in a while, Annie would be doing something, and he would stop and say, is she going to do that? And I'd say, Annie, listen, that's not for you to hear. Don't pay any attention to it. Hank, if you have something like that to say, say it to me. Don't say it in front of her. He'd say, why shouldn't I say it? I said, because you can stop somebody dead in their tracks from growing in a park. He said, I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm trying to. I don't want that. And I said, well, I want that. And that was the kind of, of negotiation and argument that went on through much of that time. So when Fred says, you know, Fred Coe said, you never know what I was saying to one actor uh, or, or the other, I was attempting to separate this and to get it buried, this kind of open discussion. Because there's a kind of open discussion that I genuinely welcome from actors. Deeply welcome, because they, and I'll, I'll come to this point, I hope, a little later on in the discussion, but at that stage of the work, the last thing I wanted was for one actor to be able to demoralize the other. And that was, that was a great problem. You made reference to Troy Zenetic. Um, uh, was, that, was that a similar situation? I mean, you had a cast of different, very different backgrounds. And you had a play that was in very rough shape. But Seems to me that there were major changes made out of town. No, no, not, no, not, not in Doing No, oh. no, that was. It was a very, very difficult play. But it, no, we didn't make any major changes. We made a few, very few. But what? What we had were two actors who were given to drink. Have a don't think that either of them would deny it. Jason certainly would deny it. But it made for a very strange, chaotic kind of rehearsal. Not your usual chaos. Not your <laughs> usual chaos. Not the kind you... <laughs> no, not one I induced. This was a chaos. And then there's Irene Worth from, you know, the British Theater. Having never seen such behavior in her life. Well, it about sent William Hellman into the funny ward. Uh, she got so desperate, and she had this wonderful nervous symptom, which was to start to cough. <laughs> and that's what I began to hear at rehearsal. And I finally said, Lillian, listen, you've got to go. you got to go. Your presence here is doing this no good. Everybody here is absolutely petrified of you. And indeed they were. I said, go away for a few days. When you, because at this point she was talking about firing. I said, go away. If, if you feel that when you return, then we will seriously entertain that as a possibility. 
But I knew that it was not a real possibility. But what we had were petrified actors. I mean, here's an icon of the American theater, you know? Little, four foot ten woman, could just about, you know, wither you. And uh, she'd come to these rehearsals, having also attempted directing herself a couple of times with not very good results <laughs> to be charitable. So she went away. And then, and then, oddly enough, they began to come together. I was able then to work beyond the actor's fear, because actors very well know when they're in jeopardy, when they're expected to do one kind of performance very early on in the rehearsal, and they're not disposed to do it that way. Maureen doesn't work that way. Jason doesn't work that way. Irene Worth certainly doesn't work that way. She was moving along very, very slowly, trying to feel her way from the play. It petrified me that we may have had the wrong person in the play. She came back finally, finally. She said, well, it's okay. It looks a little bit like a used car lot, but it's okay. <laughs> Whatever that means. Well, because they were still not not in shape, but, but she was beginning to be able to see. To see what she had. She, what she had. One of the things um, we were talking before about how expensive production is. What's new, right? What do we always talk about? Uh, one of the things we seem to have lost Fences had it, two years on the road, in effect. But uh, we don't have the out-of-town tryout very much anymore. Um, what about, it, it seems to me, now was it Sly Fox where you did so much major work on the, in the tryout? You had a long tryout on that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah we were in Baltimore. No? Baltimore. Someplace. Baltimore, Boston, New York. The usual. Yeah. What, what is it that we're, we're losing by not having that anymore? We, oh, in effect, open cold in New York because it's economical. You're, you're losing a lot. You're losing a lot. Whatever one may think about the critics, and, and, and it's open season to think what you will, I, I happen to think there's a great deal to be learned. Whether or not they're able to specify the, 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 the particular malady, they let you know that there are certain symptoms. And one of the things that happens when you go out of town to play is that you get this feedback very quickly. You get the feedback from the audience, and you certainly get the feedback from the local critics. Now, they may say the play is too somber, or they may say it's too uh, giddy, or whatever they say. It's not uh, what it is that they choose as the symptom that is afflicting the play, but that, they, that there is something awry is, is something to which you should, why it seems to me, wisely pay attention. And not to have that uh, pro progression not to have that opportunity to watch a play develop and to get feedback. And in, in several instances, there were really genuinely good-hearted critics. Elliot Norton in mm. Boston was a, a, a critic who would write his review. You could then call him up and say, let's go to have dinner and talk about it. What, why did you feel this? What was this? And, and in, a, in a way, he could be enormously helpful. And indeed, at one point, he came down in one of the outer events of my theatrical career. I took over a musical of Golden Boy, starring Sammy Davis Jr., which had played in Boston under another director. 
And Elliot had given it a very bad review up there. And then Bill Gibson and I had taken it over, and we rewrote it and redid it and so forth, and went out to other cities, and then came back into New York, and were playing previews in New York, and we asked Elliot to come down from Boston, and he very willingly did, and gave us some very good feedback based on what it was that he remembered from the play and what he remembered. So that process was extremely helpful all the way and I, and, I, and I miss it. I, I, miss it. I don't see how we could not miss it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's absurd to think that you could open in what amounts to essentially three and a half weeks of rehearsal on a new play, where the actors have barely, barely begun to perceive the play. And then what happens at the end of three and a half weeks is you sort of freeze it, you play previews, you're kind of locked into that into that attitude. I don't mean that you don't make changes during those previews, but often you make wrong changes, wrong-headed changes, desperate changes. By that point, the feedback from the producers and the ticket takers and the ushers and the backstage hands, everybody is feeding this, this information in, and it is perforce being responded to. That's not the, the orderly process of art, certainly. And uh, it's a, it's a Taking place out of town is something which I think is greatly miss. And I don't believe the institutional or regional theaters can substitute for that. They have their own axe to grind. They, the play plays their theater, they want a hunk of it. Now, that was not true before. You paid your yeah. rent, but you didn't give away a piece of the play. Yeah. The playwright was not giving away pieces of the play to every one of these little regional theaters, which now have their hand out. Not only their hand out, but it's a basic requirement in their contract. So that Playwright is being is one one of the people who's being gypped along the way because they're nicking away at his or her work. It's, it's absurd, absolutely absurd. And it's a kind of of uh, it started well before Reagan, but it's a kind of Reaganism, which is deregulation. Every theater, although it has a kind of uh, uh, pro bono uh, posture, uh, a kind of charitable or, or uh, free institution is also expected to support itself three three dollars to one or four dollars to one. How do they support themselves? They take it away from the artist, which is absurd. It's absurd, it's self-destructive, and it makes of what was perhaps a noble idea in regional theater a terrible one. They have become entrepreneurs and booking houses and stimulate very little by way of new material, new work, and certainly new styles. You brought up the subject of taking over a show from somebody else out in town of town. You've done this a couple of times that I know of. The Lovers, That's right, that was like before first. your first Broadway show. Mm. And then again, My Mother, My Father, and Me. No, no, no. You didn't that, take it over. No, I didn't take it over. That, I actually, that, that, I was in Paris preparing a movie and, and, and came back to help. Came back and um, Gower Champion had about thrown up his hands. And this was three days before opening. So all I did ah. was come back and just hold Lillian's hand and, and, and Kermit's room guard and just say, you know, let's let's go into it together. We'll do what we can. But there was no there was no directing. I mean, what can you do in three days before Broadway open? Make everybody feel better. That's right. Possible. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Drink a lot of Irish whiskey. That was what we did. This is a funny subject, though, this business of taking over, because on on the one hand. Um, and of course, now with everything costing so much, we always get back to that. 
everybody panics. I mean, the, the people in charge panic so often and say, well, get rid of the director, get rid of the star, uh, get rid of whoever. Um, on the other hand, there used to be a kind of community in which people would go in and look at each other's run-throughs or tryouts out of town and say, I think, you know, you know what dawns on me, if you do this, and, and we used to have this kind of interchange. Yes, yes. Do we still have that? I don't know. I haven't been around that. I haven't seen that. To my knowledge, we don't have it. There was a wonderful kind of ethical behavior, too, that was it was practiced, which was, if you were going to go out, if some producer would call you up desperately and say, come out and look at the play, you'd say, have you told the director that I'm coming? If he'd say, no, you'd say, I'm not coming. Tell him. If he says, okay, fine. If he says, no, I'm not coming. Uh, at a certain point, I was doing a play with David Merrick called How Now Doug <coughs> Jones, and it was just, it was a rat's nest of duplicity and backbiting and nonsense. And I finally had had it up to here. And uh, Merrick and I had it out, and I said, I'm leaving the play. And he said, okay, go ahead see you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing in George Abbott. George Abbott called me and said, is it as David has represented me? Are you prepared to leave this show? Do you, you know, how Shall I take it over him? Or, or are you being, in, in effect, can? And in that, thing, in that case, I won't take it over. And I said, no, please, please, George, come take it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me out of here. Um, I want to get into the subject of, of what appeals to you as a, as a theater project. I, you know, I personally have felt uh, a, a little jealous every time you go off to do a film. <laughs> Uh, and you've done some wonderful films, but I keep thinking, we need you here. We need you here making theater. Uh, and I'm going to throw um, a quote at you again. Um, you said about Tennessee Williams once that you think he's immensely gifted, but I just don't happen to be drawn to him. What is it that appeals to you in the theater? What should we be doing when we're, when we, should we be doing any play that's offered to us? I mean, you know, jobs are hard to find. Oh, sure, we should. I, 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 I just meant that, that that was when my plate was wonderfully full. And, and, and Tennessee and I discussed a couple of plays. And, and, I, I, and Bill Inge and I discussed a play. And I had to say, you know, Candor, I'm not the best person to do that play. I'm just not. I can do this kind of, you know, like that, that's much more my nature, a heavy-duty, hard-nosed, confrontational play. Um, plays with a kind of wonderful tenderness and softness, I may not be the best person to do, to do that play. And that's what I meant during that period. Uh, so on the other hand, I sometimes fool myself. I took a play like All the Way Home, and I thought, gee, I don't know make this into a play, but we went to work on it, and it turned out to be a, a very nice, tender play. It was one that I could do. But I felt that there were other people who could do Williams ever so much better. I mean, Kazan was breathtaking. Um, he's breathtaking with anybody, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, Josh Logan was terrific with Bill Inn. I think 
So uh, that, that's all that, that I meant by that. What do you look for when, when somebody sends in the script? I mean, obviously, you don't have to do every script that comes to Carson Dell. Well, increasing, uh, let me say, at, at a few years back, I think I looked for uh, originality, as much originality as one could find in, in the Broadway genre, where there is a certain sameness. There is, of course, a certain sameness. There was, let us say. Then along came Beckett. Then along came Ionesco. Then along came a new kind of theater, a new kind of theater writer. And increasingly, I've been looking for plays which have made use of that kind of progression, that kind of development in the theater, so that Hunting Cockroaches uh, was, for me, a kind of modern play, while the so-called well-made play is not one that terribly much interests me at this moment. I, I admire them when, when one, one comes across them, although all too seldom. I can't, I can't think of one that I have seen that I... No, I guess Lanford Wilson does some very well. What about um, classics? Let's talk here for a minute about this. Uh, you, you did a, a, a workshop for a long time on cherry orchards, right. which none of us ever got. No. And then, of course, you were involved with the BAM company a couple of years back, and you did uh, a little Ibsen there, but hardly Very a well-made play. Very little Ibsen. <laughs> so Wild Duck we're talking about. Yeah. Um, directors in training often are given classic scenes to do. Certainly in the British theater, directors and actors get to work in the literature of the past, even the recent past. We in this country never seem to see revivals of our plays of the 20s, 30s. Well, you, actually, you guys did one at Bank. Didn't you, one, one of the Zona Gale plays, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. I only, I really... You were the associate. I was the associate. With, with the obligation to do one play, yeah. that was really it. I was trying to lend my name to help them form the company, but I was not really part of it. What about, what, what about the classics, and, and, and should they have a part in our work? And, and yes. Should we all be attempting to do those? I mean, I haven't sure. got a Shakespeare and I don't know how long. I, I mean, I, when I watch these guys from middle Europe come over, you know, Servan and uh, Chile and those people, and they're wonderful with the classics, and they, they do such interesting things. I, I miss that education. I miss growing up in the theater in which that would be a part of the educational process. We, on the other hand, in the American theater, do something and learn something very different from what they know, which is we learn how to tap dance, you know, how to do it fast on our feet, as deeply as possible, with the modern play, in a process that was a very high-temperature crucible, something which, I, which they probably never could survive. The Broadway of, of the 50s, 60s, 70s was a very hot Olympic in which you, you put a new play, a new group of actors, a new director, some scenery, three weeks and a half of rehearsal, and you all met in Boston and opened. And then opening night, everybody took those reviews and said, Shit, it's terrible. Let's close it. Fire her. Fire him. Get a new director in here. Change the scenery, etc. That's the, uh, that was the temperature 
of the, the, the theater all during that period. It's not sane, but it was American. It was American. When I started doing hunting cockroaches, I was talking to Janusz Kowalski, who was the playwright and had been in the Polish theater. I said, how long was the average rehearsal period in Poland? He said, oh, four months. Four months, five months. He said, sometimes six months. <laughs> six, if I had a rehearsal play for six months, I would die. How long did you work on that cherry orchard work? Well, that was a very intermittent. It was only about, oh. uh, about over a four-week period, or a five-week period. You know, because part of the time Rip Torn was off doing a play up there, and uh, Estelle Parsons was doing other stuff. So, you know, it was, it was about two dozen Maybe it just was over a long period. What do you, what, what do you think it did for you, working on this? On Jerry yeah. Well, it reinforced in me my natural prejudices, which is what I started to say at the very beginning. I thought I, I started to rehearse that with the sense that the text is entrapping. It's so seductive. The Chekhovian text is so seductive, so brilliant that you want to just lapse into it, get into that kind of a common atmosphere, speak these exquisite lines, have these wonderful little ironies, and then that becomes the play. And I've seen a dozen of those productions, and they're, they're deadly. Or if they're not deadly, they're, they're almost deadly, except the Chekhov ideas come through. I was trying to have it be uh, accidental, uh, filled with, with inadvertence, uh, people starting to talk at the same time, and then not. And what we did was we, we operated on the premise that speak when you want to. It's not a question of, of, of if you're not replying directly to, do you want a glass of water, yes or no? And, and if Chekhov said yes, Usually Chekhov never ever replied to that. He'd say, I don't know where the doctor is. <laughs> you know, I, in reply to you, do you want to... That's... Well, we decided that we would work that way, which is, you all have your own inner system of thought. Let's not get this into a question-answer rebuttal kind of theater, but invigorate it with a kind of ongoing life in which the language that you exchange, because Chekhov is so brilliant at this, in that he doesn't use language as the motor to move the play forward. He, the play moves forward because of who these people are, and what it is that they want, and very little to do with that kind of yes and no interchange. So it was that essence of Chekhov that I was attempting to stimulate in the act actors, and it was pretty hair-raising to, to, to be there. It was very dangerous. One had a sense of kind of theatrical danger because you didn't know what the hell was going on. And yet, the language was Chekhov. It was Chekhov. And it was the words of the play. They weren't in the form of, of exchange in which we were used to hearing.
Would you show it to an audience? Yes, if I if there were a theater where I could work on something like that for two months, I would certainly show it. I think it was riveting. It's just that. It was you know, a few people thought it was riveting, a few people thought it was terrible. It's already a success. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that I'll take right away. Because, you know, I mean, if Joe Ferrer was there, and he was very nice and respectful, and he said, I don't know what this kind of theater is all about. But there were other people there. It was just It was what I never could do with Wild Duck. I, I got <laughs> Unhappy experience. Yeah, oh, unhappy. I'd rather have four weeks of the dentist. Um... Say more. Well, you know, there is a certain kind, and this is going to be very prejudiced, but I don't care. There are certain kinds of actors who go out and have made their lives uh, in the regional theater. And those people have a kind of community of their own. They have a way of working that is quasi-English, but is not as good. Just plain not as good. It's a style I call Lord Classical. Lord Classical. <laughs> that's very good. That, that's, that's a very good uh, appellation. So what I tried to do, God, forgive me for my <laughs> was I said, here we are doing Ibsen. Christ, let's, the last thing we're going to do is do the text. Please. And I have a technique that I employed once, very happily, and once very unhappy. This was the unhappy version of the technique. I'll tell you about the happy version. We did the skin of our teeth up at the Berkshire Theater Festival when Bill Gibson and I were running it. And that was based on either doing sort of neglected American plays or doing American classics in a new form. Now, I had a wonderful cast for skin of our teeth. I had Bancroft, Larry John, Stel Parsons, Alvin Epstein. Um, God, I'm reading out. But, and I said, here's the way we're going to rehearse this. We're going to come to the first rehearsal, not having met before, not having talked about this play. We're then going to sit around the table and read it. We read it, and then said, put your books away, now let's do the play. Let's take the rest of the day and we'll just try to do the play as you recall it. What I was attempting, of course, to do was to validate the actors' free associative processes, their version of why a scene came in this order. Well, it was chaotic. I mean, you can imagine. It was just chaotic. It took us all day. We just staggered through this virgin tomorrow, don't take your books home. Don't learn this play. Don't read it again. Tomorrow, we're going to do the same thing. And we did. Each day, we read the play once in the morning, and then perform it. And that way, the actors were now engaging in a kind of deductive process of why one thing came before something else. What was the logical or illogical progression here. How to use something, because perforce, very strange behavior comes out when somebody says, hey, uh, Mel, uh, the dogs are sticking to the sidewalk. And you say, what the 
What do I say now? Hey, go! <laughs> the dog, the dogs are sticking. The dogs are sticking to the sidewalk, huh? Oh boy! Well, that induces behavior, and some of it is what we would call inappropriate behavior. It's like, hey, listen, I have the funniest news for you. Your mother's dead. You know, sometimes you see people do these terrible things. My son came came up just just now when we were up in the country, and he said. <laughs> the most terrible thing happened to me. I was driving behind this car, and this cat came out, and I killed it. And he was laughing out of absolute pain at that experience. He said, I, I said, what did you do? He said, I pulled the car over. I got the cat. I tried whatever I could to, to do, but, but <laughs> the, the, the eyes were out of its head. Well, and, and I'm going to return now to, a, to, a, to, to the thing I promised you in the story. What, 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 I, what I love about that kind of behavior in actors, when that comes up in his life, is that it's so wholly unexpected that it enlightens a text in a way that we don't expect that text to be enlightened. And in measured ways, texts are become uh, unfortunately predictable because our theater is so predictable and the work we do in it is so predictable. The actor studio, years ago, they attempted an exercise which was very interesting. Clifford Odets went, had an uncle in Philadelphia, and he went off and made a recording of his uncle telling about the voyage to the United States when he had immigrated. He then took this now recording on a piece of wire, which was the old form of a recording, and had the words transcribed onto with that text, he gave that text to three or four of the leading actors of the studio and asked them to perform. Well, they, they said, it's terrible. It's Which is automatically, okay. Uh, the, the babies were filthy, they were washing diapers in the place where everyone And these actors performed this text beautifully. At that point, they said, let's play you the original text. And the original text was his uncle recording it. He said, oh, I can't believe it was stinking on that boat. You know, the maggots were in the food, the babies were crying, and we had to uh, wash the diapers in the place where we ate them, you know, and it was filled with a kind of what we would think of as inappropriate behavior. But when you hear it, you say, that's authentic, and that other stuff isn't authentic. It doesn't have that human compensatory behavior when something is so terrible that you cannot deal with it with a kind of direct emotion. You deal with it by Inverting your emotions. We all have done this hundreds and hundreds of times. The next time you find yourself doing it, remember this discussion. And you'll find it'll be very soon. It'll be very soon. I couldn't get there. I was in the worst goddamn taxi, uh, taxi accident you ever saw. I mean, to God, you hear that all the time. You give that text to an actor. I couldn't get there. I was in the worst behave it and they perform it with a kind of predictability truthfully 
authentically, but with a kind of measured expectation that it seems to me defeats the possibility of achieving a kind of life quality that this other, the other style does. So, to go back now, it's a long loop because I began with this. That was the, what we were attempting to do up in the Berkshires, and it worked marvelously. I mean, that was the goddamnedest version of skin of our teeth you've ever seen in your life. It was, it was a pistol. I mean, it, every night different things happened. Every night there was this kind of new spark because these people had rehearsed and, and had the security of the unexpected rather than the security of the measured, expected thing that comes from a well-rehearsed play where you have a certain expectation. So I thought, I'm going to take this over to our Lort company. <laughs> I'm going to tell them how to do this new version of the wild thing. Well, it was a First of all, they had no faith in this. They thought I was crazy. They were off sneaking the text at night. So then they would come in and try to play as if they weren't fully knowledgeable about what every word was and what came next and what he said and what she said. So we were into this kind of level of deceit and level of, 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 of perfectly ridiculous production. Added to which, Added to which, they had a director who was in no way uh, a, a proper director for Ibsen, apparently. I thought that Ibsen should be funny, unexpected, uh, and filled with a kind of, of uh, a human contrariness and, and oddity. And uh, it was greeted by the critics as if, it had been in the hands of a madman. In point of fact, it had been. It had been. Because given that attempted technique to rehearse it that way, plus this kind of end result expectation, I, I think I drove those poor actors nuts. They drove me nuts. And I think we turned mutually and proceeded to attack the audience, the, the diminishing audience every night yeah. with this terrible production. It was dreadful. But suppose <laughs> I don't think you're so mad. I mean, you're, you're a madman the way you're always a madman when you direct. Suppose that you had Estelle and Frank, who had been through this experience with you once. Suppose you had your company of actors, and you could say, okay, now we're going to do... What? Who? Garcia Lorca. <laughs> we're going to do a blood wedding. Uh, this is full of laughs, this blood wedding. <laughs> But if you had your people, could you not, would you not be excited yes, to do I that? Would. Would yes, they, I would. And wouldn't we be excited to yes, see it? Yes, I would hope so. I that brings so. us to the subject of company. Over there, they have, they bring them over here all the time for us to see so we can get jealous. They don't bring over the garbage. They got a lot of that. Oh, boy. Do they? <laughs> what a, why can't we have here? I mean, why is it that as soon as we get... I, you know, not all Lord companies are this kind of thing that I dubbed before. But there is certainly a tendency to do classics in this country, in the Lord theaters, in imitation British style. There seems to be some kind of classical style which involves your vowels. Yes. Vowels, that is, for the tape. What, uh, um, uh, why can't, why can't we ever find, you know, get a company that really 
has some ongoing life here. I mean, a performing company. The actor studio certainly has an ongoing life uh, that comes and goes. I yes. mean, we go through new phases there right. all the time. Why is it we can't? Should we? Maybe, maybe we shouldn't have in this country. Maybe we're too big. Maybe the, the distance to be covered by our actors is too great. You know, the red eye is a killer. Yeah. I think all those things are true. I think the lure of television and movies is very great. And, and, and consequently disrupts the company. It happened with the group theaters I mean, from the very beginning when Francho Tone and, and, and John Garfield left. It was as if, you know, they'd burned down the house, as if they'd broken faith with the basic group. But it's irresistible. It's proved irresistible in this country again and again. We've never seen it, it seems to me, ever, ever endure. Lincoln Center tried it with Irving and Blau. They tried it with Joe Pat. I, I don't know that Joe attempted to have a full company. But clearly, it's not an American phenomenon. Now, maybe it would be if there were some kind of subsidized theater to start with. If one could develop, as, say, Steppenwolf did develop, mm -hmm. which is right out of college, during the very formative years, if at that point where, an, where it would be folly for an actor to think that he could or she could make a living out of acting, Lo and behold, they could go into a company and make a living out of acting and live with a company where there were resident playwrights, resident directors, people from whom they could learn and, and to whom they could teach so that there would be this kind of loop. Then it seems to me you'd get the people young enough and be able possibly to have a theory. Maybe, maybe that's what the acting company is trying to do. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. <laughs> I'm afraid that I think that they're trying to do it in the British model. I think that that stamp mm. is, is mm. ineradicably there, which is, if you have a company, it has to resemble the RSC or the National. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. There is an American style of theater that is roughneck, hard-nosed, confrontational, not concerned with the bowels, concerned indeed with a different kind of engagement, a different sense of language, not the British measured tones, that's just as potent, just as lyrical, just as tender, just as affecting. But we don't have it. And we certainly don't have a community of critics who would recognize it if it jumped up and bit them on the ass. If it's not British, it's not classic. And that seems to be our, our cross to bear. Okay. Now, you, in a sense, all of us who've worked several times, we build a company, in a sense. Yes. You have, you know, you've worked with Estelle a bunch of times. You've worked with Frank a bunch of times. You've worked with Annie Bancroft. I have certain actors that I've worked with more than once. Um, um, don't we, in a sense, find our, the people that we work well? What would happen if we went into some kind of a workshop situation and or is it just not possible to hold these people? well it just uh, what happened was I went into that workshop situation on the cherry orchard and Rip got a job in Yale at Yale rep and he had to leave I mean you know you get down to a point where you're where there we are not paying anybody right well somebody's got to right. pay the damn bills in their family in their life you can't you can't extract that, that kind of contract from actors 
which would, would, would amount to a kind of bondage, when suddenly, hey, here's a 13-week series with this much money guaranteed. I mean, eyeballs fall out. Or here's a part in a movie. You can't keep them. On the other hand, the British do have a system whereby they work in the film during the day, or they work in the telly, and they work at the theater. They do have a kind of closed, available community. We don't. Here, we have a kind of inimical community, which is Hollywood wants to take you away from New York. They come here looking for you. That's where the talent is supposed to be. They come here and they try to buy us, and they do succeed. They buy us, and we go out there, and we make our living out there, because you can't make it here. It's a dreadful circumstance. I wish I had more, a more hopeful view of it, but I don't. I've never seen it happen. Read the fervent years. Read the Harold Kerman's book about the new Once a year, read it. We all have to get our batteries charged. And we don't have Harold around anymore to do it. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you one question, and that is, um, you had the unique distinction of doing a major property on television, on stage, and in film. You're talking about the miracle worker. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah. <laughs> if, if you'd like to hear about it. I mean, if you'd like to hear about the differences, because I, I, and that might, be, that might prove useful. Uh, I think you all know the story of the miracle worker. But, but let me just uh, isolate from the story of the miracle one aspect of it, which had to be present in both the television and in the theatrical version. <clears throat> There's Annie trying to reach Helen. I mean, that is the spine of the play, to reach that last dying flame of her intelligence. Okay? That's the spine of the play. Now, how do you, however, in, a, in the theater, offer opposition to that, offer antagonism to that? How do you achieve conflict? How do you achieve the material out of which something which is, is so clearly what we want to have happen? How do you provide adversity? Well, Bill Gibson, who wrote the play, took the position that maybe in the parents resided, at least particularly in the, in the father, resided a certain sense that the situation was as it should be. That the child was afflicted, that they were prepared to live with it that way, that change was more terrifying and more threatening than the stasis, the status quo. And so he gave this captain, Keller, this kind of role, so that every time Annie would come up with an idea like I'm going to take the child to the summer house. He'd say, no, you're not. She'd say, yes, I am. And they'd have a thing, and he'd finally say, all right, all right. But two weeks, two weeks, Miss Sullivan, and then she's ours again. And then she comes back to us. Well, those are their natural playwright forms of providing this kind of enunciated adversity, enunciated conflict in the theater. And it was necessary on television to a lesser degree. But that Bill, Bill's instinct as a playwright was to do that and to create antagonists. When, in point of fact, this was a situation without antagonists. 
the antagonist was the affliction of the child. That was the antagonist. Well, we did it on television. It was very successful. While we were out of town with Tooth of the Seesaw, having all this difficulty between Farmer and Bancroft and all that, at some mad point, like the close of the run in Washington, where we had gotten lousy reviews to start with, and where we were doing a lot of work on the play, and going through all this, as we were walking backstage one night after a performance, Bill said to me, you know, I think I'm going to write The Miracle Worker as a play for Annie. I said, you're out of your damn mind. You're crazy. I was, you know, totally absorbed in Seesaw. I couldn't see that as a possibility. Couldn't see how you could do it on the stage in the first place. Anyway, he did. He went away. Seesaw was running. He went up to the country and bang, wrote the stage version of The Miracle Worker. And hey, we opened, we played it. And if you want, later on, I'll tell you a real, one of those real Cinderella stories about, about a play. But in any event, the play opened in New York and was this great success. And so the opportunity came to make a movie out of it. Now, and this is for those of you who are going to work in the theater and film, many of you may be doing so already. I came to make the film, and I didn't have the guts or the perception to realize those scenes in which Captain Keller said, two weeks, Miss Sullivan, and then she comes back to us, we're going to play as emptily as it is possible to play. Because the camera was revealing this child in a way so intimately, so close up, so humbly, desperately enmeshed in this, in this illness that, that prevented her from seeing and hearing, and, and in which she was like this wild creature that I didn't need. The picture didn't need any of those melodramatic scenes of the captain saying that and then his son having these kind of confrontational scenes with the captain. The, the, the affliction, the adversity of that child was enough. And if I had made a better, I would have made a much better film if I had had the sense to leave out all that stuff. When, when we needed conflict, to let the conflict be visible. What, what Patty Duke was doing in front of the camera was hair-raising. What somebody was saying in support of the status quo was not hair-raising, it was melodramatic. It belonged to another form. And that taught me an awful lot about movies. It taught me what a, what a, what a potent form the visual form is. How powerful an image can be. How much more powerful and how, indeed, less language-dependent we should be in individual. And, I must say, it left a little residue of how less language-dependent we should be in the theater. It's a little bit from that experience that this other technique of directing evolved, which is I, I felt entrapped by the language, and I thought the actors were entrapped, and they couldn't play it well, there was no way to be as truthful in these rather spurious scenes as there was when Annie looked at that child. Just looked at her. And you knew that everything in Annie's life depended on reaching that little flickering flame of intelligence. It was absolutely captivating. And when she had to speak to Captain Keller and say, 
this is what I want to do for the child. It meant no. The Cinderella story. Let me let me inject you guys. We 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 done took it to see so. Annie had become something of a star, but only in New York. Uh, we now get to work on the miracle worker. We do the miracle worker. We, we go to Philadelphia. We haven't sold ten tickets for opening night. Melvin Douglas was there in a play, and he was doing great business. He was a big star. Peculiarly, it was, it was early, it was in mid-September, and it was unusually hot. And uh, Douglas was playing eight performances, matinees. And George Roy Hill directed it. I can't remember what that play was. In any event, after the matinee, Douglas collapsed. That was our opening night. That night. There was no way to reach that audience. So here we are, staring virtually empty theater in the face for our opening night. When Douglas collapsed, there comes an audience to pick up their tickets, and they're told that there will be no performance that night. They may use their tickets at our theater to see this play called The Miracle Worker, starring Anne Bancroft and Patty Duke. So we got an audience. Now, this play goes the audience didn't know what they were going to see. And you could just feel this thing start to happen in the house. Well, by the time that final curtain came down, that audience was on its feet as one. It was just the most extraordinary response because they hadn't expected anything. They were disappointed not to see Melvin Douglas's play and in turn saw this. And now they thought, we're, we were the first. So we thought, well, okay, terrific. We were back backstage and we were embracing and we did all that stuff. Came out and the house manager said, we can't close the theater. We can't close the theater. People were lined up at the few telephones calling their friends at 11 o'clock at night <laughs> saying, there is this play. Yeah. And within the day, the next day we sold out the room. Oh, so that's one of the pieces of magic of the theater that you have to have faith in. It's what got us all into this ridiculous business. That's a great story. How about some questions? Anybody? I had a question. Going back to your approach to that structure that worked beautifully at Sam, not just so successful. Suppose you went into a production of the week and as you were going through rehearsals, days and you realized that you were going to have the same kind of thing happen as that happened at the end. What do you think you might do? I know it's unfair. How do you think you might approach that? Well, it's, it's extremely hypothetical on two points, because I would never have a cast like that. <laughs> I wouldn't. And, um, you were presented with that. Yeah, it was right? a cast. They were members of the, of the resident right. company, you know. Um, I, well, I would intervene. I would intervene sooner and do a kind of orthodox directing job. But what what I've learned more and more to do is to trust the actors, at a lot of levels. I ask. I, most of my rehearsals are, are based on questions. Right? Uh, 
How do you feel? Is this a good moment? Does, does this feel like a truthful moment to you? Uh, I mean in the text. Uh, is that what you want to be doing in terms of behavior? The actor said, well, what, what else? It says here, you know, I, I uh, pick up the tea bags. What else could you be doing? So, and in that way, oddly enough, wonderful things are discovered. For instance, in Hunting Cockroaches, it opens with the woman performing the sleepwalking scene from Lady Macbeth. And it was written that she's sitting on the bed, speaking to the audience. Yet here's a spot. Out the damn spot! And, and on she goes. Well, Diane Weist and I began to say, is this the best way we can do this? What, what else could be going on? After all, she's an actress from Poland. She's concerned about her accent. She can't get a job here because her accent is so desperate. On the other hand, she won an award in Poland for playing Lady Macbeth. It's four o'clock in the morning. What do you do when you can't sleep? Well, one of the things you do is you do some kind of little laundry. So there she was now, finally, coming out of the bathroom with some pantyhose and some other stuff. And she was playing Lady Macbeth while she was doing these household chores. And then she began to speak to the shower curtain. That's exactly what You know, bye, bye, my lord. And then she moved. At the same time, she was hanging up the pantyhose over the shower so that the, uh, the two or three levels of the mundane tasks, the remembered glory, the now new level of, of invention that was taking place, all of them began to be factored into Diane's performance. And that's, that's what happens. That's what happens, it seems to me, when you ask an actor, is that, is that all? Is that the best? Is that the best we can do? Is there something else? Can we go to another layer? Leaving that. <coughs> Don't, I'm, not, I'm not saying take it out. Leave it. But let's add another layer. And yet another layer. And yet another layer. And that seems to me to be an interesting way to direct. And also, it seems to call for, from the good actors, more and more and more invention. I didn't notice what time you arrived. <laughs> Um, excuse me. What I want to ask you, what I didn't want to ask you to begin, was uh, looking this way uh, with actors, particularly in plays that uh, have a more surreal or different, more theatrical form, um, does that make you even more careful about your set before? I mean, do you know, given the unpredictability that can emerge? from the organic work that you're doing in rehearsal, which can improve an awful lot of props. But I mean, do you still, do you fix your set early on? I'm, I'm just very curious. Yeah. I'll tell you what. Again, I, I might have to respond with an anecdote from Hunting Cockroach. Uh, we, we chose the basic set. But what I always say to the actors is, as you feel the need for props, just talk, talk it out. Sing it out. Then people, somebody will write it down and you'll have, you'll have that prop tomorrow. There was, there is a scene near the end of it where, where a bub comes out from under the bed 
<coughs> because uh, he's, he's going to say you're going to come to our park, to Thompson Square Park, Thompson Square, Square Park. And, and, uh, and he, he goes on and she says, oh, Jada. She suddenly begins to remember a story about when she was a little girl in the town of Jardim, on the history of the Revolution Street, there was this pub. She would go to the pub to get her father to come home. And there were all these buckets hanging on the hooks, and so forth. And she's suddenly into this story. It's dropped in the middle of the scene in which this bum was there. And the bum was sort of sitting over here. And she was over there with Mel. And the scene is dead. Here's the bum, and there's Diane. And she's confessing all this stuff out of a memory experience that never had its uh, equal elsewhere in the world. Well, there was a wicker chair, part of the set, the wicker chair there. And we were talking about that. And slowly, I don't know why, this came to me. I just walked up in, while they were talking during the scene. I put the chair between them like this. And it became a confessional. Just a very abstract confessional. Suddenly, you thought, oh, there are all these old vestiges of Catholicism underlying this. Childhood is there. And it began, now the actors got it. And then they began to do it. And pretty soon, Got a little, little further than we wanted to, and so we took it back. But I mean, by the, at a certain point, there he's practically giving her absolution, you know. But that's what what I mean to be saying is, I think you provide the minimal set, and then use the materials in the same way. Get the actors, or if God bless you, you, you get the inspiration as I did at that moment to do something with a piece of furniture, to enter it into an intervention, because this, this is something which I have not spoken about, but which clearly is a part of whatever you want to call it, the method or whatever technique, is the obstacle. The very essence of, it seems to me, of performance is obstacle. Obstacle. As we've said many times, it's a joke, but it's not such a joke, which is, if Hamlet were Macbeth, the play would be over in five minutes. <laughs> He'd go up on the battlement and say, Okay, Dad, you mean that motherfucker killed Ma? You gonna kill Dad? Boom! Down you go. And, and the close. What gives us three hours of the most breathtaking dinner? Hamlet's obstacle. The obstacle of his nature, of his character. Well, it's that stuff that it is the director's obligation to enrich, to put fertilizer on, to say, you can't. You can't. Sorry. You want to do that? You can't. Find a way to do it. You can't do that. And in a way, either through another actor, and this is the way, this is why when we were first talking about this, uh, Mel made reference to, to my whispering, I often give the other actors obstacles to prevent that from happening. To try to prevent that from happening. <coughs> and the other actor is thrown back and forced into another kind of invention that sometimes takes us into the happy fields.
Yeah, we, we, we originally thought we were going to design a door, and then we decided, no, we took it out. Yes, very good. Yes, we Very badly. I auditioned very badly. I, I, you know, uh, unfortunately, I do what everybody else does, which is have, have the actors read. And it's a lousy way to audition. It's lousy. Um, what, what, what brought that home to me was um, when we were going to do a film called Four Friends, we had two weeks of rehearsal. And during that two weeks of rehearsal, we never rehearsed the text. You know, how do you rehearse a movie? You know, you can't rehearse a movie. You're in a room, not on the basic locations, you know. What we did was we did improvisations around the situations of the movie. And if I were, if, if life were different and if time were different, I would do those kinds of improvisatory things with the actors rather than have them read the text, which really from everything I've said here, I, I, could, I have, to, have to assume you would find e even more offensive in my case, because I, I deplore that reliance on the language of the text, and yet I do the same thing that everybody else does. It's dreadful. It's dreadful. Yeah, I'm a little afraid that I have some questions. Given the fact that theoretically all the here, and given the fact that we're all trying to What I do believe is that we are in a, a very severe economic nexus in which uh, Broadway as Broadway is really ludicrous. It's now become a real estate game. Totally. Totally. And, 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 and it's under the control of a couple of guys who in themselves are personally really quite charming and, and with whom I have a, a good deal of, of amusing uh, affectionate disagreement. But I, I think that it's, it's a grave misfortune that, that they are as powerful as they are. But clearly, they're only models for all the other landlords who are running the, the American theater. What I believe is, is, is uh, in the fact that, that, that those kind of theaters have to die. While it, I expect that eventually places like Steppenwolf, places will spring up and start their own little birth where they will have their writers work with them. And it will start again. It will probably come back to this in the year 2025, 20, you know, when we'll be saying the death of Broadway again. But I hope by a certain <coughs> point, and, I, and, and certainly from the perspective of my age, I can say to you that the theater is vastly different right now than it was 15 years ago. Vastly. Everybody then aspired, well, 20 years ago, everybody then aspired to Broadway. There was no offer. Off-Broadway was for amateurs. And now we see constantly the better work done. So I'm, I'm not filled with pessimism about the theater. I'm filled with the 
more than pessimism, contempt about Broadway. You in the back. He was a wonderful gentleman of his word. He was, he, was, he was not a quitter. He was in no way going to violate his contract. He, 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 he was a man of, of uh, spectacular ethics and, and, and great candor. I mean, he, he spoke with a wonderful sense of honesty. Over time, did he come around to the way he sense? I think ever so slightly in the course of the run, he came around. You see, uh, one of the things that, that we've all, we're all familiar with is, is panic. It's just raw panic. Now, if you're the biggest star on Broadway, you can imagine that there's a commensurate panic. Henry thought he was going to be laughed off the stage. And in, in, with all due respect, he thought that this was just going to be a terrible flop. A terrible flop. And indeed, what happened was, ah, we had two benefits right before we opened. One was one of those wasp audiences. And here's a Jewish leading rape. Not something which was so common. You know, you didn't have it. It was not so common for somebody to say, Mosca, no, my name's Moskowitz. You know, I'm a, I'm a dancer, yeah, et cetera. That kind of talk. Well, we played for one of these lost benefits. I can't how chilly that theater was. Not a chilly, not a lot, nothing. And, and Hank said, I told you, I told you, we're making fools of us. And indeed, every one of his own personal fears was valid. The next night happened to be for a Jewish group. And they were tearing the seats out of the house, you know. And he came in. She had the groceries. She, the phone was ringing. She couldn't get the key out of her purse. She had to get in there. She also had to pee. And she had to get there. She picks up the phone. She says, yeah, hello. And screams all night. And we were off and running. <laughs> I said, how about that, <laughs> because his mind was purely set on the fact that he was going to be crucified. He was not. And he was gentleman kind enough and decent, my God, to, to say, okay, this is a success. I'm not enjoying this part, however. And I don't want to stay in beyond six months, but I will play my six months out as well as I can. And he did. Yes, you did. Uh, you were saying how you like, like one kind of video uh, that's hard to do and, and that. Now that you've been talking, uh, how does your system uh, work with comedy? As you can see, in comedy, you have to have a little more of the parameters around it, whereas in drama, you fall on a lot of proportion. In comedy, you have to laugh, you have to worry about how an action has to work. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that. I, I think uh, that you have to be a little more extravagant with comedy and, and not say, gee, we didn't get the laugh here. 
If you don't get it there, you're going to get it somewhere else. And, you know, given an audience and given a night's performance, so long as the light is, is vibrant and lively and, and, and intense, you're going to get laughter. You're going to get laughter. I mean, God, doing Nicholson May was, was an education. Because one night we got it here, another night we got it there. But inevitably, we got the laughter. We got the laughter. It just didn't fall in those measured ways. Unfortunately, one of the things that we learn when we're starting out in the theater is don't walk on that. That's a laugh line. Turn, do this, and that'll get a laugh. And we learn this kind of externalized technique in order to get the one uh, palpable response from an audience that we know we can count on. And that's laughter. And, it's, and, and if you don't get a laugh at a certain point, everybody goes, oh, shit. We didn't get, we didn't get the laugh. Well, you didn't get the laugh. That doesn't mean anything. Something else was going on that caught the audience's attention. Now, if it's somebody behaving outrageously, you know, kind of cutting up. But if it's not that kind of measured beat, I think it's a more lively and vibrant comedy. And <coughs> I think have more faith in comedy. The other, the other point about comedy that I that I, I would just want to communicate to you is comedy is the last thing to come into a play. I've discovered, which is you do it, you build it layer by layer by layer by layer, and it looks elevated. Oh God, this is about as funny as a graveyard, you know. And then on you go, and then finally, as you get there, with hunting cockroaches. I mean, we got to the theater and played a couple of runs for this. Not a titter. I mean, not a titter. And then the actors found their way, found their place, began to take possession of the place, and pretty soon the sense of security and ownership took place. The laughter came. It just came and came away. Uh, yeah, when you uh, described Knowing we only in the case of, of Irene Worth and Poisoning Avenue, I knew that we were bringing in a completely alien kind of actor to the American scene. Did you want that in Yes, I did. Yes, that strangeness and separateness. But I did that it's a luxury that Bartander could have when he had a company. You know everybody's life at that time. I'm sorry, we have to stop now. We have to release the room. Uh, Arthur, <laughs> the next, the next group is coming. Thank you so much. Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from stage directors and choreographer society, the National Theatrical Union, celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.